Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathine, and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. I'm really excited for today's conversation. I think it's exactly what many of us could use starting off a new year. I'm talking with Katie Carter, who has been working for social justice as a nonprofit professional for the past 15 years, with a particular focus on LGBTQ plus gender and racial justice. Originally from the Midwest, she moved to Portland, Oregon in 2008 to contribute her passion for social change with her skills in organizational development, fundraising, communications, and strategy. In 2019, she relocated to Seattle to become the CEO of Pride Foundation after being on the staff for five years. In her role as CEO, Katie supports the foundation's efforts by building community and institutional partnerships, developing creative communication strategies, and mobilizing resources to affect change in the Northwest. Prior to her role, Katie was the director of strategic priorities and before that, the regional philanthropy officer in Oregon. Katie believes deeply in community involvement and the importance of volunteering. She currently serves on the board of directors for Grantmakers of Oregon and Southwest Washington. She also was a co-founder of a restorative justice group that facilitates a gender and sexuality seminar for people who are incarcerated. She earned a master's of art and philosophy of science from Indiana University and a bachelor of science in psychology and philosophy from DePaul University. In addition to her professional and volunteer commitments, Katie is an avid reader of feminist and political writing, philosophy, poetry, and memoir, and has a lifelong interest in science and the natural world, particularly animal cognition and behavior. She also enjoys crafting, watercolor, writing, everything having to do with cats, and all bodies of water, especially the Oregon coast. Katie, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Well, I am thrilled to be here and I can't wait to dig in. I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk in more depth about this. Same here. And I think something that I'm really excited to talk about today is coming into the new year. A lot of people are setting goals or they've got their eyes to making big moves in 2023. But something that you had said in one of our first meetings was that you had a whole other life land. And I feel like it's such a good phrase to unpack as we start a new year. So I'd love to start with what were you supposed to? in air quotes, supposed to be doing with your career. Yeah, I I love that you pulled that out. And I love that you pulled out the idea of supposed to as well, because I think that was definitely one of the driving forces. So just for context, I'm 39 now, just to give people a sense of time. But one of the things is I was going to college, I started college and it was 2001. And, you know, I did my college career and really felt like the only path that I saw open after college was to stay in academia. I double majored in psychology and philosophy and minored in biology. And the path that I had sort of developed during my time there was when to go into research on animal behavior and cognition. So I was in this totally other world. Long story short, I realized that the pathway of going into direct research wasn't going to be ideal for me for a variety of reasons. Ended up sort of taking this slight offshoot into a field called history and philosophy of science, which is basically looking at understanding the ways in which we know the world through scientific knowledge and think in sort of placing that in historical context. So it was sort of like meta thinking about research. But I think one of the things that was really, as I was reflecting on this question that felt clear to me is that I didn't really think about 
pathways outside of that academic path, in part because the people I was exposed to were all professors and academics and people who had taken that path. So I assumed that was the way that I needed to go and other options didn't necessarily feel clear or visible to me, which is sort of ironic because I also worked in the career center at my college for the entirety of my time there. And so I actually was exposed to all of these other options, but those felt like options for like business students and marketing students and not people who were interested in doing something in social justice or doing something in a slightly different frame. And part of the reason why I contextualize it with my age is when I was in college, this feels like wild to talk about like this, but we had dial-up internet for most of the time, right? Social media wasn't a thing yet. So my network was only the people that I was physically in relationship to and in proximity to. And so I just wonder how this idea of exposure has changed not only through better representation in media, but just people having broader networks that exist beyond the physical proximity. No, it's such an interesting question because obviously I see a lot of that in my own work. And on the one hand, with LinkedIn, with the internet, with podcasts like this, there is certainly a lot more information sort of readily available. But I've still found that core theme of who's your community? Who do you interact with on a more personal level? Shapes a lot of what people think are viable options for them. Like those narratives can still creep in of, well, that's a good option for someone else. Or I don't know like if I can really access that opportunity. So there is in one sense a lot more information, but some Mm -hmm. of those core principles are still very much at play, kind of jumping ahead a decade or two. So yeah, that's it's interesting that that was sort of a theme because I haven't seen that totally vanish either. Well, and one of the things I encounter often still now to your point of the internet didn't change all of that is I feel like at least a couple times a month, I meet somebody or hear about something and I'm like, that's a job. It never occurred to me that that was a job out there in the world that you could do. And so I often just think about sort of how we can expand our exposure, not only to different people, but even thinking more broadly about what it is we want to do and what are the multiple pathways towards that. Absolutely. And so along those lines, I'm curious how you did find your way to philanthropy and development. Yeah. I mean, maybe I can tell like the shortest version of this story, which is so I was in undergrad in Chicago. I ended up going to graduate school in Southern Indiana, studying history and philosophy of science. Two years in, I was really struggling, not with the program, but with feeling connected to my community, connected to myself. There was like a lot of coming out journey that was happening at the time and really trying to find what I was supposed to be doing in the world. And I had this like really thinking suspicion that it was not in becoming an academic. It was not going to be in, you know, and especially at the time, this was what, like 2006, 2007, when like it was getting even harder to find jobs in academia, which has only become the case, especially in this the niche of the nichest field. Like there's like two jobs available, you know, every decade in that field. And I was like, what am I doing? How am I actually making the impact that I want to have in the world? And the feeling that I remember from that time is just feeling really, really far away from my purpose and from what I was hoping to be doing in the world. And so whenever I share this story, especially with, I guess, a whole bunch of people on this podcast who have never met me before, this isn't necessarily characteristic of who I am. But at the time, I just really felt 
like I I needed to do something different. And so I packed, I dropped out of graduate school, which my mother always says I should frame as I quit with my master's. But I I left and I sort of picked up and moved um, to Portland, Oregon, sight unseen, without a job, without, you know, housing beyond six weeks after I landed there. It was 2008. It was like the height of the recession. It was on the face of it, maybe not the most responsible of decisions in terms of, of economic security, at least. But I felt really deeply in my body and in my intuition that that was what I was supposed to be doing. And the day after I arrived in Portland, there was a posting for a co-director of the Feminist Community Center in Portland. And I ended up interviewing and somehow getting the job, which is still feels a little wild to me. And, and really, that was how I started working in development and philanthropy because it was 2008. It was a feminist community center that was also a bookstore and our sort of business model, so to speak, was based on the idea of us selling books and textbooks as a form of income, which you might remember, this was also when like Amazon was becoming not what it is today, but becoming sort of like the largest bookseller in the world that independent booksellers like us just couldn't compete with. And so our entire business model was sort of undermined, combine that with the recession. And, you know, four months into what I was thinking at the time was my dream job, we were in a financial crisis thinking about having to close our doors. And so I learned fundraising basically over the course of a weekend by reading Kim Klein's book, Fundraising for Social Change, which I still... There's many editions since that version, but I was like, okay, I've never done fundraising before. We're going to go out of business if I don't raise like $50,000 in two months. So I'm going to figure out how to do this. And so that was my crash course into fundraising. And actually, right after that, I wrote my first grant that I ever wrote um, to Pride Foundation, which happened to be for one of our biggest revenue raising events that we held at the community space which was called Dirty Queer. It was an X-rated open mic night. Super fun, very popular. And um, we needed it to be more accessible. We needed to have chairs for people of all sizes and abilities. And there was no air conditioning. We needed fans. It was like these super simple things. And so we wrote a grant to Pride Foundation and received it. And then I started sort of orbiting in the Pride Foundation universe. I started volunteering. I think what actually happened is I didn't understand philanthropy at the time. And they, I shouldn't tell this story, but I will. But they, the person at the time reached out to me and was, you know, you got a grant. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And they're like, could we you know, host a grant award event in your space. And I was like, well, sure. I guess what I do is I host the event for you. And so I like got all this stuff donated and I put all of the the event together thinking that was what was expected, which of course was not. And so I sort of got flagged in their system as a super volunteer and they kept calling me to participate in different volunteer opportunities. And eventually a job opened up as a regional organizer for Oregon and I applied and, and I got it. And that's sort of how I ended up in philanthropy, but it was really less about intentionally moving into philanthropy and wanting to move into a position that was more closely, you know, working on behalf of my community, the LGBTQ community. And I think I've stayed because I really like systems level work, which is what the field kind of focuses on. 
think what I so appreciate about that story is I feel like I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about like strategically shifting into spaces and thinking critically about all sorts of different things, which is obviously important. And that's not to say it didn't play a role in your path, but there's something deeply you trusted your gut. You followed mm-hmm. the things that you cared about. You took a little bit of a chance, which obviously not is an option for everybody. And there are some risks with making those sorts of moves. But I think mm-hmm. it's it really speaks to how much of this can be unscientific and serendipitous mm-hmm. and just like, yeah, following that gut. A lot of people ask me for career advice all the time. And when you're networking or building relationships, I'm like, follow the same instinct you would as you get to know anybody else. Like, do you trust that person? Are you values aligned with that person? It sounds like a lot of those themes sort of emerged from you as you entered this space too. Yeah. And I totally agree. I think that's incredible advice that you're giving people. And it, you know, I always think of the Mary Oliver quote of like, you know, what are we going to do with this one wild and precious life? We get this one time. And I, I think a big part of my motivation in my career is knowing that, you know, this is a big chunk of my life. And, you know, finding balance is always going to be a challenge for me in part because I want the work that I do to be meaningful. And I want it to feel like it's connecting me to some purpose in the world. And that's my motivation. That doesn't need to be everybody's motivation. My, I guess this is the second time in one interview, I've already quoted my mother, but she always says, Kate, you shouldn't, you know, live to work, you should work to live. And I've always sort of disagreed with that sentiment, because I don't want my work to just be in service of my life outside of it. And for some people, that's the case. And I think that that's what you should do. And I also think that like, to your point, following your gut, following your intuition is really important. And I think for me, it was also very important that I try to find some sense of happiness in my work. And like when I was in graduate school, like just to sort of normalize talking about how mental health plays into this, like I was in probably one of the deepest depressions of my life and trying to figure out, you know, what were the proximate causes of that? And if there was anything I could do to sort of shake myself out of it. And I think, you know, making a decision that really was life affirming for me was important on so many different levels. So while there was a huge risk and like picking up and moving across the country from an economic and a financial standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, it didn't feel risky at all. It felt like the thing that was actually going to make my life more worth living, you know, at the time. So. Right. Because everybody is going to have a different set of things that they value at different stages of their life. And so being really honest with yourself about what you need at this stage is really critical to making decisions that will make you happy, that will get you where you want to be. Because again, like that's a theme that I sort of mull on a lot. I'm turning 30 this year. So I'm kind of operating a decade or so behind you. And the things that I cared about 10 years ago versus five years ago versus now, knowing what I'll care about five years from now, 10 years from now, it's I acknowledge that those things are all going to shift and just sort of being honest with yourself of, okay, what do I need at this stage of my life? And where do the different things that, you know, I spend my time on, how are they energizing me? And where do I need to set boundaries? Like all of those discussions with yourself are so important at every stage, at every decision that you're making. 100%. I couldn't agree more. So in discussing this big shift you made, I'm curious, you worked in academia, you were, you know, thinking about animal research, like you were doing something very different, obviously, than philanthropy. And as you mentioned, had this crash course, you read a book and you just sort of put yourself out there. But did you find that there were anything, any skills or experiences from your air quotes, previous life in academia that sort of translated over anything that kind of comes to mind there? 
I guess I am of the opinion that like I try to live my life without having regrets and try to see all of the decisions and choices that I made as being the things that are creating the conditions for the next set of choices that are in front of you. But I do feel like that entire time in my life is when I was really developing my political analysis, right? Like when I was being exposed to new ideas that like I grew up in a small town in the Midwest that I didn't, you know, have necessarily a lot of exposure to, you know, thinking more critically around gender, around race, around economics. It really was an opportunity for me to be politicized. And so I think the conversations that I was having in college and in graduate school really gave me the opportunity to sort of hone that political lens and my belief system about, you know, what justice was and looks like or is and looks like, I should say, what are the conditions that have created the world that we exist in. And for me, that, you know, even though it's this like obscure field of like philosophy of science and epistemology and all these things, like what it basically is, is like, how is this really powerful force of science, right? A field that is and has been historically dominated by white affluent men. How is the research that is happening in that field biased? Because it is. How is that structuring and shaping what we know and believe to be true about the world? And what are the questions that we could ask that maybe could help us think about it differently, right? Or understand the perspectives that are not being represented there, understand the interests that are not being served by the outcomes. And so a lot of that work that I was doing is still what I'm doing today in many ways, is really thinking about what are the forces and the circumstances and the realities that are shaping our world, that are shaping who has access to what are shaping, you know, why the inequities and the disparities that exist, exist, right? And just working not just in the field of science, but sort of looking at a multitude of different ways that that shows up in the world. And so I think that was a really big part of my learning at the time that fundamentally shaped who I am as a person and shaped the career path that I wanted to be on. In a lot of ways, while I'm on a totally different path now, in some ways, I'm exactly on the same path, right? Like my why is still the same. Like I've always wanted to do work that was impacting gender, LGBTQ and racial justice. Like that was my focus back then. I thought I could do it by influencing the way we understand and think about scientific knowledge and how it's created and who it's created for. And now I'm thinking about it more in terms of the way that we are resourcing movements for justice. So my why is the same. It's just like a shift in how I'm approaching the same things that I'm trying to impact in the world. That's so powerful because I also spend a lot of time on this podcast also discussing the power dynamics of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something so exciting to me about the fact that you have this sort of academic background of power structures and society and dominant narrative being in now a position of power in a lot of ways in the community, just being the CEO of an organization like the Proud Pride Foundation. And let's get into that. I would love to hear sort yeah. of you talked about what pulled you kind of into the Pride Foundation. And it sounds like just the nature of the work has obviously kept you around. But I'm curious to kind of get your reflections on what it has been like seeing the nonprofit sector, seeing the foundation world from your vantage point as CEO and sort of what some of your big takeaways have been from the last couple of years about how to impact change 
in just maybe the context of your own community where you are? That's a big question. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah, break take, it up. Take, yeah, your, yeah. take I mean, your time with it. That was, I know a very big question. I mean, I think, you know, also to just offer some context, I started at Pride Foundation as an organizer. I moved into a variety of different roles within the foundation and through those roles really understood not only the foundation better, but got to understand the field of philanthropy much better. I mean, I think it's important for me to name uh, vulnerable truths that when I, you know, first took the position at Pride Foundation, I wasn't making a conscious choice to enter philanthropy. I was really thinking about how I could do work for LGBTQ justice in Oregon, which is where I was living at the time. It was a big learning curve for me to really think about and understand the power dynamics that were at play in the work that I was doing. And I think differently than my sort of academic background, where I sort of learned about things from a theoretical perspective, and then got to go practice them in the world. I learned a lot about philanthropy by practicing it and by noticing the power dynamics that existed. And now that was nine years ago when I started. And now there's all these incredible books and analyses written on on the field, decolonizing wealth and winner takes all and like these really smart, brilliant ways of thinking about the field, but but that kind of came afterwards. And my knowledge of the field sort of came by noticing when I took this job, the relationships that I had with my community shifted because all of a sudden I was in a position to decide who got funded and who didn't, right? That when you went to certain events and not other events, that that had a bigger impact than me just seeing whether I had the energy that night, right? Like that that really showed in a different way. And Pride Foundation is kind of a different sort of found, we're a community embedded foundation while we, of course, need to grapple with the realities of what it means to be philanthropy. But we're also raising resources with and for our community and we're operating in a little bit of a different base. But I feel like that is 100% something we need to all be grappling with in these roles. And I think as I ended up in places of getting more positional power, would be honest with you, it was not my intention. I'm a very motivated and ambitious person. And I wasn't, I'm going to be CEO of this foundation someday. That was explicitly not necessarily my goal. But I think one of the things that I've been able to really learn and notice, I've been CEO since 2019. And most of so most of my time has been during the pandemic, during the racial uprisings of 2020 and beyond, during you know the unseating of democracy, some of the most vibrant and harmful anti-LGBTQ legislation of you know the past several decades. It I've really learned that there is an opportunity in time in this position, in this organization to try to do things better and try to learn and do operate outside of the framework that we have been given as how money moves through ecosystems, how communities can and should be resourced. And now I feel like I'm just, I'm sort of got away from your questions. No, I mean, this is the point of this podcast. Please pontificate. (laughs) You're hitting on a lot of the things that I was curious to hear about anyways. I think one place I'd love to better understand is you're sort of talking about what makes Pride Foundation different from other more traditional foundation structures. You're raising funds uh, for and with community. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more about how that works. And I ask also through the lens of if there is somebody out there who is interested in philanthropy and wants to identify foundations that are more rooted in communities maybe than others are, things that they can be looking for or questions they could be asking to sort of identify other organizations who are using similar models to what y'all are doing there. I'll try not to go too far because I feel like the fields of philanthropy more broadly, there's a lot of intentional confusion around what's philanthropy, what's not. There's 
these private foundations, there's public foundations, family foundations, there's all these different ways of framing those, there's donor advised funds, you know, which I'm always part of the work that I want to do is like kind of creating opportunities for people to learn about those different things and sort of demystifying what I think is an intentionally obtuse field, you know, and anytime something's intentionally confusing, you're like, why is it? Why are we using all these acronyms and all these things that are very confusing and keep people out. But so Pride Foundation founded in 1985 in the midst of the HIV and AIDS crisis. We, our headquarters is and was in Seattle, but we work across Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Alaska. And one of the sad truths is we're the only LGBTQ foundation in our region. And we're actually the only foundation that's intentionally focused on resourcing and supporting LGBTQ communities as on purpose and as sort of a strategy. But we do that by, and we have always done that by raising resources within our community from other LGBTQ people, from allied folks within our community, and really being a hub both for moving resources out to LGBTQ organizations, groups, student leaders, through our scholarship program, out through our advocacy work. But a big part of our work is also by you know inspiring and encouraging philanthropy within LGBTQ people in our own community to make sure that you know we have those resources and part Part of that is our history, right? It's not just our unique model didn't just happen, or it happened because, you know, in back in the 80s, people were dying of AIDS-related complications, and many of them wanted, you know, didn't necessarily have kids and didn't necessarily have families that were supportive of them or and wanted to leave their legacy to their community and wanted to really make sure that the groups and organizations that were starting to really gain momentum at the time had the resources that they needed. And we I think I say we, even though I was young during that time, but since have learned that, you know, our government wasn't going to support us. Nobody else was going to do it for us. If we were going to support our community, it had to come from us. It had to come from one another and that we had to take care of ourselves and we had to take care of one another. And I think those principles have been true for Pride Foundation from the beginning. And so one of the things that we think about a little differently is like the resources that we have are not our resources. They're not Pride Foundation's resources. They're our community's resources. And we are set up to help move them from our community back to our community. And sort of a one way you could think about it is like a wealth redistribution system of like, how do we move resources to the people who need them most, to the people who've been kept away from them intentionally for the longest? How do we make sure that our communities actually have all the things that they need to live and thrive and be able to build the institutions, the organizations, the structures that we need to support ourselves? Because unfortunately, while a lot has changed since 1985, we're still very much in the place of if we need it, we're going to need to build it for ourselves, which means we're going to need to resource it for ourselves. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of other social justice foundations. There are other foundations like Pride Foundation who are similarly resourced by community and set up to move those resources back to community. I think that group of foundations and types of funds and projects like that are unique within the field, which is often set up from one family who had a significant amount of wealth that you know gets to decide what matters to them and where the resources go, or from private foundations that were set up from either one person's wealth or a corporation's wealth or what have you. And you know, those I think are just from an IRS standpoint, they're structured differently. And from a 
who you're accountable to is structured differently, right? We are accountable to our community, not only because that's where we're raising resources, but because we're embedded in our community. And if we're not doing right, we're going to hear about it. And we welcome that. And that's how we get to do our work better. That's incredible. And one of the things that, you know, has come up a few times in the conversation is, as you said, some things have gotten better, but many, many things have not gotten any better. And things in many parts of the country are deteriorating significantly for the LGBTQ community. And I'm curious what it has been like to be a leader in the space, to be somebody who is trying to support their community, not just tactically, like some of the things that you've been actively doing as an organization to combat against some of those really dangerous forces. But how do you emotionally take care of yourself? Tough goings last couple of years. And I'm curious yeah. how you stay motivated and don't lose your cynicism and continue to fight the good fight. I mean, one of the things that has been true over the past, I mean, especially ever since the pandemic started, Pride Foundation went to four-day work weeks. We went to having flexible schedules for our employees. We started offering, you know, wellness stipends for people who were working from home. You know, a lot of these are like policy things that were driven not from books or from conversations, but from like talking to my team and seeing what people needed, the challenges that parents were having, trying to figure out how to provide childcare to their kids or, you know, do homeschooling, all these things. I feel like there was an opportunity over the past couple of years to really lean into the the fact that, you know, we're human beings doing work, no matter what industry or field or company or organization we're at, we're comprised of people and we have to really center that and make sure that we are creating policies within our organizations, but more importantly, a culture that is fundamentally grounded in a care for one another so that we can do a better job of caring for our community. And so a lot of what I was able to do at Pride Foundation over the past couple of years is really shift a lot of those practices to really center the well-being being of the team. And, you know, we're still, of course, in a learning curve on all of that. It's very hard to go to four-day work weeks when the rest of the world is not, or most of the rest of the world is not on them and still expect Friday meetings and all that. And how to interrupt for many of us decades of working in nonprofit grind culture and how to unlearn that is still something that we're figuring out. But I think there was really an opportunity where we came sort of face-to-face with the really terrifying realities of the past couple of years and trying to also be clear about prioritizing what is actually working worth it and what isn't. I'll say for myself, it's been tough. And I think many of folks on my team would say the same thing. And many of my peers in the field have said the same thing, just because the past couple of years have really asked a lot of leaders. They've asked a lot of all of us to make big decisions, hard decisions. I didn't take any classes or any books on how to like run an organization through a global pandemic, unlike anything we've ever done before. So a lot of it was also having to trust your instincts, really lead with your values and lean into your values and make decisions where there weren't right or wrong answers necessarily. There were just better answers or more values aligned answers. And so for me personally, you know, taking care of myself emotionally has been a challenge if I'm just going to be totally honest. We've all been in these working from home offices, which I actually love and is wonderful, but you're also like deep in it for day in and day out. And I have a profound sense of responsibility to the organization that I am so honored and privileged to get to lead, but also to the community that we're set up for. And so there was 
a lot of days and nights where, you know, trying to figure out, were we doing the right thing? Were we doing enough? Are there more things that we could be doing? But I think what I've just tried to do, and I've learned this from my team, I've learned this from other people, is just trying to think about the bigger picture more broadly and think about like, what are we trying to do? And let that be our North Star, let our values be the core thing that are guiding things. And one of my team members, this probably comes from somewhere, I, I should look it up and see who actually said this, but like, just do the next right thing. So I think there's this thinking big, but also thinking like on a very day-to-day level of how do you stay present in this moment and not get overwhelmed by all of the potentialities, all of the terrifying potentialities that the world was has was and has been offering us and just figure out what's the next right thing to do. What is the best thing that you can do with the time and energy that you have? So still a learning learning curve for me. And I think for all of us, it's not just like work-life balance. It's like all of these things that are happening. There's like so many different factors that you're having to juggle. And so it's so much more than like a teeter-totter, right? It's like there's all of these other factors that you have to consider that are complicated. But I think it's also just focusing on like what is actually giving you energy when you need to take a break, take a break. How do you, you know, lean into allowing yourself the time to shut off and the time to recharge and knowing that like those are the things that are going to make us, you know, not only better in our jobs and more impactful, but like that's actually what we need to stay around, right? You know, and I think working at an organization that is of my community, right? I am very attentive to like not wanting to grind my team and these folks because we're not just like these robots working on behalf of LGBTQ communities. These are like our people, our friends, our community, our family. So how do we like treat one another as such? I love that sentiment so much because the thing that actually sort of the place that Second Day came from is that we could see that there is so much emphasis on movements and making change, but there was so little focus and support in place to support the people leading those movements. We focus so much on what needs to get done, but rather not who is getting that work done. And you mentioned that that nonprofit grind culture, which I think we take we are taking baby, baby steps away from, but it's still deeply rooted in a lot of spaces. But it's very refreshing and gives me a lot of hope to hear how thoughtfully and intentionally you listen to your team and try to create an environment, not just where you could be thinking more broadly about how to meet the incredible needs of your community, but think about like how your team is really central to that and making sure that they're also taken care of. That makes me really happy to hear. Sort of kind of coming towards the end of the conversation, something else you and I have talked about is the lack of direct pathways into philanthropy, particularly if you are a little more junior in your career, the industry does still skew a little bit older. So any advice you have for someone who wants to create those inroads who might be a little bit earlier in their career, any thoughts for people listening who might be interested to learn more? I mean, one of the things that I just would encourage before making that decision is like really getting clear your why for philanthropy, um, which is real ironic for me to say when I'm like, I stumbled into this field chosen to stay in it. And part of that is because I'm like, this is a lever for change that I think I can affect. But it's also a field full of really complicated and conflicting truths, right? Like the resources that we are distributing while they're coming from community, ultimately, they've come from, you know, the theft of land, the theft of labor, they've come from really, you know, problematic histories that you have to grapple with what that means, you are sort of put into a position where by structure and by design, where you get to decide or get to work within an organization that is deciding what gets resourced and what doesn't. And of course, there's organizations, including Pi Foundation, who are intentionally disrupting that way of doing 
doing philanthropy and using more trust-based models, using participatory or community-led models, but it's a complicated field to work in. And, you know, one of the things that I talked both with my team and with other folks in the field is just grappling is something that you have to be willing to do. And I think in order to make the kind of impact that I am guessing people will want to make by entering philanthropy, you have to be willing to like keep that energy alive to both be in a sector that you know, you have to work like every day, like anybody does at a job, but you also have to have the energy to try to shift the sector, right? I guess you don't have to, but I would encourage people to have that energy. That's what I want to see in the world. And I suspect many of your listeners are wanting to get into philanthropy, not just because they are better paying jobs, which they are, which is also problematic. And, you know, why philanthropy should be paying so much more than nonprofits while we're funding nonprofits. And many foundations have, you know, hesitancy of giving general operating support or funding quote unquote overhead, which is literally like paying people to do the work, paying for the resources that are necessary for work to happen. So just, I think the willingness to grapple with those things is sort of like one big step. And I've just seen a lot of folks come from movement, come into this field and just get really, really burned by how slowly it is changing. And so I just feel like from a transparency standpoint and from a wanting to care for people who are doing really good in the world. I don't want to discourage anybody from moving into it, but I just want people to really be able to enter the field with eyes wide open about what they're. And I think you're right that like the field is kind of hard to break into. I will say that there has been for better or for worse, philanthropy has been really hiring more from organizing and movement spaces, really wanting people with that direct expertise of working with communities. There certainly has been an important push to make sure that more Black, Indigenous, other people of color are coming into philanthropy to some extent, LGBTQ people coming into philanthropy. There's still questions for me around whether the conditions of the field itself are actually conducive to being inclusive of people who have been very intentionally kept out of the field. And so as people do come into the field, I just encourage folks to find your networks. There's a lot of whole other field called like philanthropic support organizations. So there's like a whole field set up to support philanthropy to do its work, which is a whole other conversation that we could talk about why that's the case. But there's this really fantastic organization called Change Philanthropy. And there's a lot of identity specific organizations that are partners of Change Philanthropy. So like Native Americans in philanthropy, Hispanics in philanthropy, LGBTQ funders. There's these groups of networks where you can find other people who are working in the field too. So as people get in, I would encourage you to find those networks of peer support. And I think in terms of getting into the field, you know, one of the things is like when you see philanthropy jobs, even if you don't have a background in the field, most people don't have a background in philanthropy, right? Until you get into the field. And I think there is to some extent an understanding of that. So, you know, get your foot in the door to a position and there's often often easier to get another job once you've already been in the field for a while. But, you know, make the case that the work that you've done in movement or the work that you've done at a nonprofit really has set you up to be you know, the best person to be in a program officer role or a programmatic role. I also think there's like, we think about philanthropy as just being the grant making side, but there's finance, there's operations, there's fundraising, there's all of these other pieces that exist within that. So just remembering that that depending on what your background is, that also is is a pathway in. And I think that I hesitate to always encourage people to do volunteer activities just because not everybody has time to do unpaid work in their lives. But oftentimes, 
times there are community within local government, there's often like these community groups that are doing decision making that are set up by different government agencies around where resourcing for parks go or where different kinds of things. That's sometimes a, a good way of getting like grant making experience without actually being in the philanthropic sector. So again, just thinking about how you can sort of build out your resume to offer those experiences. But also, I think when I was a career counselor, one of the things we talked a lot about was transferable skills, right? Like you don't have had to do the exact job in order to be able to do the job, but you just need to like understand what are the skills that are required to be successful in philanthropy. And like one of the biggest ones I think is relationship building. All of the things that go along with relationship building, being being a listener, being a person who knows how to work with and for community, those kinds of things. So I think building up sort of your resume and your cover letters and cases for support um, within interviewing process processes that help you really help really draw those lines for different foundations about why you have the skills that that are needed to work in this field. I really can't top any of those comments. I would triple underline everything that you said. <laughs> I think that I think all of that resonates and very grateful for your transparency. I think philanthropy and the dynamics of money in this space are so tricky. And I appreciate you offering some thoughtful questions that people should explore before they step into this space because it does, yeah, comes with a unique set of challenges and opportunities alike. So just knowing mm -hmm. yourself well enough to know like what is right for you and, and your values systems. Yeah. So well, and just if I can just please. also be like, yes, please, more movement people come into this yes. field. <laughs> once there's a critical mass, there is a way that we can really shift and topple the field in the way that it has been operating. So I don't want to dissuade anybody, but I just always want to be mindful of the impact it can have too and want to make sure people... Absolutely. You should know what you're signing up for. I'm very yeah, much like one of those. Yeah, uh -huh. I'm one of those people too. I'm like, Every and I very firmly believe every institution is going to come with its own blind spots, going to come with its own downsides. No matter where you go into this in social movements, being aware of what those are. And to your point, like having your eyes open, keeping the energy to try and make things better. Again, whether it's philanthropy or nonprofits or social uh, enterprises or CSR or government spaces, like there's about a thousand ways that this can manifest. But mm -hmm. it's keeping that critical eye, no matter what you do, I think is so, so important. 100 well, thank you so much for this conversation. It brought me some much needed grounding in the middle of a really hectic week. And I have no doubt our listeners will get a lot out of this as well. So just very grateful for your time and energy today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's definitely not my usual to wake up on a Wednesday morning and talk about myself for an hour. But hopefully there has been some things that will help your listeners figure out the field and also just want to always offer myself as a resource in that base. If there's anything I can do to help support people getting into philanthropy with questions about philanthropy or more broadly about on their career paths. I'm always here for that. So thank you for the work that you all are doing to sort of help create career trajectories for people and to sort of create pathways into places where many of us have been intentionally kept out. So thank you for that work. I appreciate that. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. 